Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 21, Pyrrhus of Epirus. Now, right when I thought that we would be getting to the part of the story where the Romans come into Greece and conquer the Hellenic world, we discovered a man named Pyrrhus of Epirus. He was the second cousin of Alexander the Great and general of the small kingdom of Epirus, north of mainland Greece and to the west of Macedonia. This kingdom is located in modern-day Albania, and it was right across the Adriatic Sea from the Italian peninsula, and therefore right next door to the emerging Roman Republic. He was born in 319 BCE to the king of Epirus, but when Pyrrhus was only two years old, his father was deposed from the throne and forced Pyrrhus to spend most of his childhood in Illyria, the land north of Greece. He became close friends with Ptolemy and even used his friendship to regain the throne of Epirus. While Pyrrhus fought in the Diadochi Wars and even tried to expand the kingdom of Epirus, the Roman Republic was expanding their influence over the Italian peninsula. All the way back since the 8th century BCE, the southern half of Italy and most of Sicily were home to the Greek city-states and their colonies. By 280 BCE, the Roman Republic was butting up against these wealthy Greek polis, and conflict became inevitable. Pyrrhus is considered to be the last great Greek general before the conquest of the Romans. The story of Pyrrhus the Great starts back in 317 BCE, when Alexander the Great's mother Olympias was still alive, and as power-hungry as ever. She was after all born in Epirus, and was the daughter of the great king Neoptolemus I of Epirus. She attempted to rule over Macedonia with the help of Aeacides, king of Epirus, until her grandson Alexander IV, son of Alexander the Great, came of age and could rule over the empire. Cassander took advantage of the dislike for Olympias and marched an army against Aeacides and Olympias, killing Alexander the Great's mother and son while forcing Aeacides into exile and declaring Neoptolemus the new king of Epirus. With Cassander now in power of Macedonia and Neoptolemus the new king of Epirus, Pyrrhus was forced into exile to spend his childhood in the northern kingdom of Illyria. The most important detail to note here is that Alexander's heir was now dead, and anyone could claim to have equal right to rule over Alexander's empire. And it's really at this point that there was no chance in reuniting the Greek generals under one banner, under a single king. Several years later, Cassander marched his Macedonian troops over the mountains and into Illyria, where he conquered the Illyrian king and took possession of the child Pyrrhus. When Antigonus sent his son Demetrius into Athens to revolt against Cassander and take control of southern Greece, Aeacides, the old king of Epirus and father of Pyrrhus, returned from exile to take back his throne. Cassander had to stop this from happening and sent his general Philip to Epirus to maintain control. Unfortunately for Pyrrhus, his father Aeacides was unsuccessful at taking back his throne and Philip killed Aeacides in battle, solidifying Neoptolemus' claim over the throne of Epirus. In 307 BCE, the king of Illyria invaded Epirus and defeated the usurper Neoptolemus, putting the rightful heir to the throne of Epirus the 11-year-old Pyrrhus. This act made Epirus a client to Illyria, and all seemed well until Pyrrhus left the kingdom to attend a wedding in the northern kingdom of Illyria. This left his new kingdom completely vulnerable to revolt, 
and like clockwork, he was deposed, and Neoptolemus was reinstated as the king of Epirus, again. This time there was nothing he could do to take back his father's kingdom in Epirus. So he sailed along the coast of Greece to the Isthmus of Corinth, where he met up with his brother-in-law Demetrius. There he sailed across the Aegean Sea to fight in the wars of the Diadochi, at the side of Demetrius and Antigonus. In 301 BCE, Pyrrhus fought in the battle against Seleucus with his brother-in-law Demetrius in the cavalry on the right flank. It was in this battle that he proved himself to be a competent soldier. There are reports of him charging the enemy on horseback, just like Alexander. This was the epic battle where Seleucus's 300 war elephants trapped Demetrius from saving his father Antigonus, and the Antigonid Empire was defeated. Demetrius and Pyrrhus escaped to the Aegean Sea and sailed back to Greece, where they solidified their forces in southern Greece. Unfortunately for Pyrrhus, his side lost the battle, and Demetrius and Antigonus, now deceased, lost all of their territory to Lysimachus. In 298 BCE, Demetrius made peace with Ptolemy of Egypt, and in the peace treaty, Pyrrhus was handed over to Ptolemy as a hostage. Now this was more of an honorary position, and after a few months in the court of Ptolemy, he was wed to Ptolemy's stepdaughter, strengthening his bond with the Diadochi. In 297 BCE, Cassander died, leaving a power vacuum in the kingdom of Epirus. It was Ptolemy who provided Pyrrhus large sums of gold and an army to sail north and reconquer his homeland from the usurper Neoptolemus. Instead of going to war with Pyrrhus, Neoptolemus agreed to share power with his rival, but secretly he was planning to have Pyrrhus assassinated when he was least expecting it. Knowing that Neoptolemus was plotting against him, Pyrrhus invited his co-ruler to dinner one night and had him hacked to death. Neoptolemus wasn't just some guy claiming the throne, he was Pyrrhus' cousin. So this was a very messy thing to do, but it secured his right to the throne. This wasn't one cousin turning on the other, it was almost expected of them to turn on each other, leaving the strongest to rule alone. Pyrrhus' first conflict came from the two sons of the Macedonian general Cassander, Antipater and Alexander. Their mother's name was Thessalonica. Thessalonica favored her son Alexander and split her husband's empire up between her two sons. But the results angered Antipater and he revolted against his brother and killed his mother. In 295 BCE, Pyrrhus' wife died in childbirth, leaving him grieving, widowed, and with a child. In 294 BCE, Pyrrhus was forced into the civil war in Macedonia, and after Antipater seized the empire for himself, Pyrrhus took his army and marched into Macedonia with the young Alexander by his side. And after conquering Macedonia and expelling Antipater, Pyrrhus handed the kingdom over to Alexander. Once Alexander was back in place, Pyrrhus withdrew his army back to Epirus. Antipater was slowly welcomed back into the court where the two brothers ruled together. And this was supposed to return things back to normal, but Demetrius in the south was just wrapping up a military campaign against the Spartans. He marched north to join Alexander and Antipater in their own land, and after they feasted together, Demetrius murdered the younger son Alexander while Antipater fled away to Lysimachus. The Diadochi still in control over Thrace, Byzantium, and half of Anatolia. By 293 BCE, Demetrius controlled all of mainland Greece except for Epirus and Sparta. 
His empire was once again growing. Now with the death of Pyrrhus' wife, who was also the stepdaughter of Ptolemy in Egypt, it left Pyrrhus devastated and his grief made him more reckless. When riots broke out in central Greece and Demetrius was forced to send his army to deal with the rebels, Pyrrhus took advantage of the situation and invaded Macedonia. He was able to extract tribute from several cities before Demetrius heard about the treachery and marched his soldiers north. He attacked all of the cities loyal to Pyrrhus instead of taking him on directly in a fight. In 289 BCE, after Demetrius had subdued every city in Greece loyal to Pyrrhus, he marched his army across the mountains to invade the kingdom of Epirus itself. Pyrrhus heard the army crossing the mountains to invade his kingdom, so he gathered his own men to meet them in the mountains. Unfortunately, he sent them down the wrong path, and the two armies completely passed each other without ever meeting. Demetrius marched into Epirus and started raiding the countryside unopposed, while Pyrrhus crossed the mountains and encountered an army of 10,000 men waiting for them. It was one of Demetrius' generals, and his army blocked the pass. The two armies faced off, but before the battle commenced, the two leaders engaged in single combat. There were several back-and-forth blows, Pyrrhus taking the first hit, but in the end Demetrius' general was cut down and defeated. After defeating his enemy in his first command, he gave a speech to his army. Through you I am an eagle, for how should I not be when I have your arms to sustain me? In 288 BCE, the remaining Diadochi, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Lysimachus formed an alliance to wipe Demetrius off the map once and for all. They sent a letter to Pyrrhus and Epirus and asked him to join in on the surprise attack against Demetrius. It started with the sea invasion from Ptolemy, with hundreds of ships landing in central Greece and besieging Athens, and at the same time Lysimachus invaded from the north. And as soon as Demetrius marched north to meet Lysimachus, Pyrrhus invaded Macedonia from the south and pillaged the lands of Demetrius, raiding unopposed to the capital of Macedonia in Pella. Demetrius pushed Lysimachus back into his own kingdom on the northern border and was about to chase him down in his own country to capture and kill his enemy when his troops started to protest. They were pissed off at Demetrius for letting Pyrrhus raid their lands unopposed while they fought Lysimachus in a, in a foreign territory. Demetrius was forced to march his troops south and, and confront Pyrrhus at the capital of Macedonia. Unfortunately for Demetrius, his soldiers were growing more and more angry with his leadership, and their admiration for Pyrrhus of Epirus was increasing. And as soon as Demetrius made it to Pella, his entire army defected and joined Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus had defeated Demetrius without even shedding a drop of blood. However, his victory was short-lived as Lycomachus rolled into the kingdom from the north with his entire army and claimed half of the victory for himself. Pyrrhus didn't trust Lysimachus, so he pulled his men back to the kingdom of Epirus and let Lycomachus just take control of Demetrius' territory. Now Lycomachus controlled all of mainland Greece, except for Sparta, as well as all of Macedonia, Thrace, Anatolia, and the coast of the Black Sea. And now Lycomachus' empire was growing. In 283 BCE, Demetrius passed away, leaving the small territory of the Peloponnese to his son Antigonus II. 
That is all the Peloponnese except for Sparta. With Demetrius taken out and Pyrrhus minding his own business in Epirus, Lysimachus decided to turn his attention on his ally Seleucus I. It started out with some small raids and claiming territory for his new empire, but the full wrath of Seleucus was summoned and he marched his army across Anatolia. In 282 BCE, Ptolemy I died of old age. He had ruled as pharaoh of Egypt for over 40 years and even founded the library in Alexandria. In 281 BCE, at the Battle of Choropedium, Lysimachus was defeated and killed by Seleucus I. This isn't just another battle fought between Greek armies of the surviving Diadochi. This was the very last battle fought between the surviving Diadochi. When Seleucus fought against and killed Lysimachus, the last of the Diadochi were defeated. Seleucus was now the supreme ruler of all of the Diadochi, and at this point controlled almost all the territory that Alexander the Great had controlled, minus Egypt and Macedonia. Knowing that time was of the essence, he launched a campaign across the Bosphorus to seize control of Macedonia. Seleucus was on his way to taking complete control over Alexander's empire, but it was not meant to be. Before he could make it to Europe, Seleucus was assassinated by Ptolemy's son, Ptolemy II. The last of the Diodoci were now gone, and with it so were any chances of reforming Alexander the Great's empire. With all of the Diodoci dead and their heirs or assassins now in control over Macedonia, Egypt, and the majority of the Persian Empire, Greater Grecia was in shambles. Everyone had claim to the other's land, and they all claimed it through the right of Alexander the Great. Only by this time, anyone who knew Alexander the Great personally was now dead. Further west, the independent Greek colonies had managed to spark the anger of their neighbors to the north, the Roman Republic. Rome started out like a city-state, very similar to the Greek polis. One of the strongest Greek polis on mainland Italy was Tarentum, which is located in the Arch of the Boot, if you know your Italian geography metaphors. Tarentum was colonized by the Spartans, and was therefore Dorian. They harassed too many Roman ships to spark the anger of the Roman Republic, and this spooked the rulers of Tarentum. They knew the Romans were forced to be feared, and now they needed help. So they sent an envoy across the sea to plead for help from Pyrrhus of Epirus. Pyrrhus agreed to help the Greek city Tarentum in exchange for complete control over the army, and sent his full fighting force across the narrow sea and landed on mainland Italy. The current leader of Macedonia was excited to see the king of Pyrrhus leave the region, so he agreed to support his cause and donate more troops to Pyrrhus' army. In 280 BCE, Pyrrhus sailed his entire army and thousands of soldiers from Macedonia across the Adriatic Sea, landing on the coast of Italy. The Romans sent an army to the Greek city of Heraclea, and in the plains outside of the city, Pyrrhus met the Roman Republic for the first time. While the two armies camped on opposite sides of the river, Pyrrhus and his commanders snuck up on the camp to spy on their enemy. And when they saw just how organized the Roman legion camps were, they realized that they were not facing an army of barbarians. These Romans were civilized. Pyrrhus raced back to his army and ordered the immediate stationing of a small task force of archers and javelin throwers. As soon as the archers made it to the edge of the river, they were surprised to see that all 40,000 Roman soldiers were marching out of their camp and crossing the river. 
Even though Pyrus's archers and javelins killed a lot of Roman legionnaires, the sheer number of soldiers marching across the river overwhelmed them. In this battle, the Roman legionnaires were able to cross the river fully formed up and marched towards the Greeks. Because Pyrrhus did not expect a full-scale attack so quickly, it took him time to muster up his soldiers and form the Macedonian phalanx. So Pyrrhus had to distract the Romans while his phalanx got into formation, and he sent all 3,000 of his cavalry into the Roman legionnaires. At first, Pyrrhus had the advantage, but they slowly and surely started to pick off each Greek soldier one by one. In this battle, Pyrrhus was injured and pulled off the battlefield. His best friend and general swapped armor with him and rode into battle, strengthening the morale of their troops long enough for the Macedonian phalanx to begin its charge into the Roman soldiers, who were now fully across the river and pinned between the water and the phalanx. Thrust by thrust, the Greek soldiers stabbed at the Roman legionnaires until the entire first row of Romans were killed. The Greek soldiers were inspired by their king, and they were about ready to crush the Romans. Unfortunately, the Roman soldiers on the right flank killed the general pretending to be the king, and they cut off his head. The Romans then paraded the decapitated head of the Greek king along the battlefield, slowly wearing down the morale of the Greek soldiers. Eventually, the phalanx broke apart, and the Romans started to hack their way through the, the ranks. Seeing that his army was on the brink of total retreat, the real Pyrrhus rode his horse up and down the ranks of his army, reassuring all of them that he was alive. And it seemed to work, and the Greeks started to regroup and hold their own ground. At this moment, Pyrrhus sent his war elephants into the two flanks of the Roman army. And up until this point, the average Roman soldier had never even heard of a war elephant, let alone seen one. Although most of the Roman infantry held their ground, the Roman cavalry horses were spooked and they started to flee right through the Roman legionnaires. It was utter chaos as the Romans fled across the river in panic, all the while being hunted down and killed by the Greek cavalry. Pyrrhus won the battle, but he had suffered extreme casualties on his side. After this battle, Pyrrhus sent an ambassador to Rome and brought many gifts. He was sent back to Pyrrhus with only the message that Rome rejects all offers of peace. The messenger also informed Pyrrhus that the Romans were not to be underestimated and had already replenished their armies and were marching south. A Roman negotiator arrived in Pyrrhus's camp almost right after the return of his ambassador, and the Roman negotiated for the release of all Roman prisoners captured at Heraclea. Pyrrhus tried bribing him many times, but the honor of the Roman was so strong, and he could not betray his overlord. Even after a Greek servant offered to poison Pyrrhus for money, the Roman negotiator alerted Pyrrhus and warned him about the treacherous servant in his ranks. The Roman legionnaire could not be bought, and this loyalty impressed Pyrrhus. It was very un-Greek. Pyrrhus agreed to release all of the prisoners to the Romans. He was unable to meet the Roman army in battle, nor take the city of Rome, despite having marched six miles within the Roman city walls. The city walls were just too big to lay siege over the winter, and so they were forced to retreat back to Tarentum, where Pyrrhus's army regrouped. Now, there were many local tribes on the Italian peninsula who had been subjugated by the Romans, and they viewed the Greeks as heroes. So over the winter of 280 BCE, many local tribes flocked to the Greeks, and they joined Pyrrhus's army. 
In spring 279 BCE, Pyrrhus marched his army north along the Adriatic coast. That's the eastern side. When Pyrrhus directly threatened the cities on the eastern shores, the two Roman legions trailing his army were forced to engage with and stop the Greeks. Up until this point, they had been avoiding a direct confrontation. This battle, like so many before, started on the edge of a shallow river, each army staring at each other from the opposite side of the water. The land wasn't favorable for Pyrrhus and his Macedonia-style phalanx with 18-foot pikes, so he was forced to retreat until they found land flat enough to get into proper formation. When the Romans crossed the river and met the Greeks in battle, they had a secret weapon to defend against the elephants. They forged large iron pikes onto uh, chariots and built a super phalanx to skewer the largest of war elephants. When the two armies met in the battlefield, the wall of Macedonian pikes made it impossible for the Roman legionnaires to get within fighting range. But the Romans didn't fight the same way as the Greeks, and they threw their javelins from a safe distance and with amazing force, many times going right through Greek shields, pinning their arms through it. Pyrrhus ordered his elephants to charge, but they were stopped by the iron chariots with iron pikes. The Roman army broke through the center of the phalanx and almost completely collapsed the Greek formation. Pyrrhus himself led a charge into the center of the phalanx to plug the gap and fight back the Romans. The battle was looking grim and the Greek line almost collapsed when the elephants broke through the iron chariots with the help of their archers and charged to the side of the Roman army. It was a bloodbath as the elephants trampled and tossed the soldiers like ragdolls. Ultimately, the Romans retreated across the river and Pyrrhus was left victorious on the battlefield. Pyrrhus lost over 3,500 men on the battlefield that day and his military camp was burned to the ground. He is quoted for famously saying, One more victory and we are done. While he regrouped in Tarentum, Pyrrhus received two letters. One was from Syracuse on Sicily and pleaded for military help against the Carthaginian Empire. The second letter was from Macedonia. The king had died, and Pyrrhus was asked to come and claim the throne as his own. He decided to go south against the wishes of his men and fight against the Carthaginians in Sicily. In 278 BCE, Pyrrhus landed in northern Sicily and marched south, taking two cities along the way and being treated as a liberator. More than 3,000 volunteers joined his army. He then marched south onto Syracuse, where he took the major city from land and sea. After liberating all the Greek cities, he crossed into the Carthaginian side of the island. Pyrrhus was interrupted when he got word that the Romans had returned and took back all the gains made by Pyrrhus. In 275 BCE, Pyrrhus was once again back in Tarentum, trying to rebuild his army over the winter. When spring came and he didn't have the troops he needed, he was forced to make do. This time when the Romans met the Greeks, they had mastered the art of fighting off elephants. When the battle began, the Romans pelted the elephants with javelins until they panicked and charged through their own ranks. The javelins were too much and Pyrrhus' army fell apart. He was forced to retreat from the battlefield and ended up sailing across the Adriatic back to his kingdom of Epirus. In 274 BCE, Pyrrhus marched his army into Macedonia 
to claim the throne, only to find that Demetrius' son Antigonus II had taken the throne and had control over all of Greece except for Sparta. The two armies met in battle, and after the two armies made several charges, Pyrrhus started to call out the officers by name and Antigonus II's army, and very quickly they all defected to Pyrrhus' army. With Antigonus II's army gone, he was forced to flee to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a new city that was founded by Cassander in 315 BCE. Without anyone to oppose him, Pyrrhus conquered all of Macedonia, but for some reason let Antigonus escape to Athens and decide to focus his efforts further south. In 273 BCE, a noble traveled from Sparta to visit Pyrrhus in Epirus and told the court he was almost elected king of Sparta and devised a plan to overthrow the current king. Pyrrhus thought this was an excellent opportunity to abandon his campaign in the north and start a new one in the south. He sailed across the Gulf of Corinth and invaded the Peloponnese. His goal was to take the city of Sparta, which had held on to its independence all this time. And he brought with him all of his Indian war elephants. At first, Pyrrhus met the Spartan ambassador and told him he was only interested in waging war against Antigonus and wanted to free the captured Peloponnesian cities. Now, Pyrrhus further tricked the Spartans by requesting that his two sons take up military training in the Spartan capital. And this request lowered the suspicions of the Spartan ambassador, and they returned to the capital to discuss the matters with the new Spartan king, King Arius I. When the 27,000 soldiers marched upon the city of Sparta, they were challenged by a much smaller force of hoplites. They were Spartans, the best hoplite soldiers the world had ever seen. But they were still hoplites, an outdated soldier that was vulnerable to the 18-foot pikes of the Macedonian phalanx. They started to retreat back to the city and gave the order for the women and children to retreat. And as soon as the Spartan women caught word that they were being evacuated, they defiantly ran to the front lines. They professed that they would rather die than see Sparta fall. The men were encouraged by the bravery of their women, and they started preparing defenses for a long siege. But once again, the Spartan women intervened and told the men to rest while they built the defensive wall and they dug the trenches. It was more important for the men to be fully rested when Pyrrhus attacked. At first light, Pyrrhus ordered his army to attack the Spartans, but were shocked when they saw the fresh trenches and they were defeated in battle. The Spartans never let a single one of Epirus's soldiers across the trench and Pyrrhus was forced to fall back. Pyrrhus then ordered his left flank, commanded by his son Ptolemy, to maneuver around the trenches and attack the Spartans from the side. But as they tried to get around the trench, a small attack group of elite soldiers, led by the Spartan prince, ambushed Ptolemy and killed almost every single one of his men. Ptolemy himself barely escaped back to his father Pyrrhus. Again and again, Pyrrhus ordered charges against the Spartan trench, but they were repelled every single time. The entire battle, Spartan women participated, either by digging more defenses 
or by carrying the wounded off the battlefield. When nightfall came, Pyrrhus abandoned the siege against Sparta. The trenches were impossible to breach, and there was a revolt in Argos that he needed to attend to. And while Pyrrhus marched his army north away from Sparta, they were ambushed in the night. A small strike team of Spartan warriors ambushed and stabbed many people before being run through with swords themselves. Unfortunately, in this ambush, the Spartan assassins killed Ptolemy, the son of Pyrrhus. His grief turned into deep depression, and Pyrrhus quickly unraveled. But his army kept marching on. When Pyrrhus made it to Argos, he encountered Antigonus II's army. Pyrrhus was blood drunk and wanted to get revenge for the death of his son. Pyrrhus had the superior army and the superior numbers, so Antigonus refused to meet him in battle and abandoned the city by a few kilometers. When night fell, Pyrrhus broke down the gate to the city. Or a traitor from the inside opened it, and he marched his army and his elephants into the central market of Argos. Unfortunately for Pyrrhus, the king of Sparta, Arius I, had been following his army the entire time and snuck into the city. At the same time, Antigonus sent his troops into the city to confront, confront Pyrrhus, and a terrible nighttime battle erupted, and there was complete chaos as three armies hacked at each other in complete darkness inside of the city. Eventually, they had to call off the fighting as no one could tell who was who anymore. When the sun came up, Pyrrhus realized just how outnumbered he was. He had to retreat while he still had time. Somehow, communication between Pyrrhus' forces inside of the city and the rest of his army outside of the city broke down because his army attempted to charge into the city to, to defend Pyrrhus while Pyrrhus and his soldiers were trying to run out of the city through a very narrow gate. And what resulted was a bunch of elephants clogging up the gateway and nobody was able to get in or out. Pyrrhus and all of his soldiers were cut down, and Pyrrhus himself was beheaded. The king of Epirus and his heir were both dead. The death of Pyrrhus of Epirus was also the death of the last great warrior king of Alexander the Great. The events that happened next involved the Phoenician colony of Carthage. So a little background of Carthage is necessary. The colony was founded in 817 BCE by the Phoenicians, who are located in modern-day Lebanon. The Phoenicians were the maritime powerhouse who inherited the Mediterranean Sea after the collapse of the Greek Bronze Age. They are the origin of the modern-day alphabet. The Phoenician alphabet passed down to the Greeks and from them to the Etruscans and from the Etruscans to the Romans, who gave it to the provinces of the empire, which was passed on to all the countries in Europe. Before the Phoenician alphabet, there were just hieroglyphs. The city of Carthage was founded on the North African coast in modern-day Tunisia, and the landscape was much more habitable back then. In fact, North Africa was a breadbasket and produced most of the agriculture traded throughout the Mediterranean. The riches of North Africa made Carthage an agricultural superpower, and they dominated trade in the region. By the time we catch up to our narrative of the Greeks, the Carthaginian Empire dominates North Africa from
from Morocco to modern-day Libya, as well as most of Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia, as well as southern Spain. They were the dominant power in the West. On the Italian peninsula, the Roman Republic was expanding. According to Roman mythology, the city of Rome was founded in 753 BCE, only a few decades after the foundation of Carthage. Now, Rome went through a series of kings, and after nearly 400 years, the kings were overthrown, and the Republic was founded. They expanded much slower than the Greeks or the Phoenicians because they were interested in maritime trade only. So far. When they expanded, it was usually to deal with a military threat. They were sacked in 390 BCE by the Celts, and this act scared the hell out of the Romans. And they never forgot or got over the incident. In fact, anyone who posed a possible threat to their city had to be subdued. This was enshrined in Roman culture, subdue and subjugate. First it was other Latins, then it was the Etruscans, and then it was the Greeks from the south. If the Romans encountered a threat, they would bring the attention to the Republic, and it would be added to the agenda to absolutely crush and destroy their enemy. It didn't matter if it took six weeks, or sixty days, or six months, they were going to get them. And the Romans' next threat was the Greek colonies on the Italian peninsula, specifically that of Tarentum. Because the last king of Epirus, Pyrrhus the Great, engaged the Romans multiple times in battle and defeated them, they never forgot this, and their mission was to eliminate the Greeks off their peninsula. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.